you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the law had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maseiah on his right hand, and Pediah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbanadah, Zechariah, and Meshullam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maseah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Paliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Well, good morning. Uh, well, while studying in Bible college in Calgary, Canada, uh, I student pastored a large young men's group who decided to go on a snow trip Uh, together to the snowy mountains of Montana, USA, which was just south of the border. But when we got to the US border, uh, Border Patrol sternly called me into their large office because I was the only international student in that whole group. 
And inside the office was just, if you imagine, the most patriotic American room you could ever see. The US flag was hanging, like a massive US flag was hanging on the back of their wall, framed pictures of Obama on every single wall. And if you can imagine, the environment was very strict and uptight. I was very nervous. They were probably thinking these rambunctious kids are trying to smuggle in this fake Australian. And it didn't help that these other church boys were like rowdy and were joking around, like saying things like, I deport him, we don't even know him, you know? Like, guys, feel the room, guys, please. And I got to the service desk and was faced with the most terrifying man I've ever seen. And he asked me, uh, what are you doing here? Which I replied, I just hit a snowboard with some mates. And he gave me a dirty look and looked ready to send me back to Canada. And he took a look at my passport and all the required documents and with his menacing eyes, he scanned the papers up and down and he looked at me and he goes, you're in Bible college? Boy, praise God, man, like, welcome to our country. Y'all are people of the world, you're one of us. Welcome to Montana, man. (laughs) Americans, man, gotta love them, right? See, as followers of Jesus, we are often identified as a people of the word. How we relate to the Bible is the clear evidence of who we are as God's people. And it's in our passage today, in Nehemiah 8, where we'll see what a scholar Derek Kidner describes as a turning point on this day, that from now on the Jews would be predominantly a people of the book. It's here in this chapter that we see God's chosen people go through a a spiritual revival, and it's all centered around this, this book. And it shouldn't be too much of a surprise for us, right, when we hear that the, the Word of God being instrumental in spiritual revival. We've seen it in the Old Testament, such as Second Chronicles 34, as, as Judah suffered under the reign of godless kings. God raised up Josiah, who instituted spiritual reforms based on what? The law of God. And so the nation repented, revival followed. Or we think more recently to something like the Reformation, where the Roman Catholic Church had long neglected the word. And so God raised up faithful servants, you know, Martin Luther, William Tyndale, John Calvin, to bring about spiritual renewal, bringing believers back to a faithful understanding of what? Of scripture. The word of God is so vital to the believing Christian that it's no wonder we are often called a people of the book. And in our passage today, as we observe this spiritual revival by the word of God, what I suggest that we see is that God's people do four things. One, that they demonstrate a hunger for the word. Two, that they desire to understand the word. Three, that they're hit with the truth of the word. And four, that can rejoice in the promise and joy of the word. So before that, I'll just pray as we go into our passage. Father God, uh, just so thankful that we can gather today together as one church, as one people for you, Heavenly Father. We pray uh, that as we dig into your word, may it be your words that remain in my friends' hearts. Take away any words that are of my own and make yours remain, that may challenge, convict, and encourage us to see more of your beauty and your relevance and more of Jesus. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you've been journeying with us for the past few weeks, you remember that we're now at a point in the story where we are in Jerusalem. And after around 50-odd years, odd days, odd days of work, the walls around Jerusalem had finally been rebuilt. Things were finally looking settled for God's people. And so we read, 
When the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. If you know a bit of the history of God's chosen people, you notice that what just happened here is actually huge. Because if you look through the Old Testament, most of the time the people, God, the people of God gathered to hear God's word was because a leader would call them to come together. But this is one of those rare instances where the people desired to come together to be in the word. And not only that, but how many times in the Bible have we seen these same people reject God's word rather than be desperate to hear it? We can go all the way back to Genesis 3, where the first humans rejected God's word and disobeyed him in the Garden of Eden. Or the first king of Israel, Saul, who was told by Samuel, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king, as read in 1 Samuel 15. There are even Psalms, such as Psalm 119, that lament how God's people had often neglected his word. Think about it. The very reason the Jews had to rebuild their city in Jerusalem in the first place was because centuries earlier, they had rejected the word of the Lord, and so they were exiled to Babylon. But look at them now. The very place their ancestors had rejected the word is the place that God's people now wanted. What we're seeing is a real spiritual revival in God's people as they demonstrated a hunger for God's word. And looking at our passage, I think we can see that their hunger was evident in a few ways. Firstly, in where they gathered. Again, look at verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it. He read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. See, what's interesting from this is that the Jews here, they didn't summon Ezra to come read God's law in the temple court where the altar of worship would have been the the main focal point as they heard the words, the very words of God. But instead, they gathered in the square before the water gate. This gate being the one that was used to visit the main spring of water supplied to residents of Jerusalem, basically a heavily populated, high-traffic area. The square was one of the main centers of city life. It would have been like instead of God's people gathering in St. Paul's Cathedral, they instead gathered in Fed Square. And I think this demonstrated their hunger for the word because it meant anybody and everybody could hear and understand and would be able to gather men, women, children, anyone who could understand a public display that they were indeed a people of the book, an extraordinary book for an ordinary people in their ordinary lives. Theologian Derek Kidner writes, God's people gathered in the kind of place where God's wisdom pleads most urgently to be heard. The law itself insisted that its voice must not be confined to the sanctuary, but heard in the house and the street. The Jews' hunger for God's word was on display here because they knew they needed to hear it where they needed it most in their everyday lives. This reading was not left exclusively for the temple courts, but for the houses and the streets. And I think this is important, because I think for us today, 
we're easily tempted to think that the Bible should be left exclusively to the temple courts, as in left in the church sanctuary. It's only important when it comes to Christian matters. It's only valuable in a church context. It only speaks into topics of religion. And who can blame us when our Western society tells us this every single day? A society that tells us that the Bible is completely irrelevant. It's an ancient book that is outdated and behind the times. A postmodern society that no longer hungers for the word, but is sick of the word. So keep your word of God where it belongs, in your church and away from us. As Christians living in the West today, the reality is, is that this book has become unattractive. Ears are no longer attentive to it, but are closed to it. It's no longer admired, but despised. Stephen McAlpine from his book, Being the Bad Guy, says, the only way to stop being a bad guy in the eyes of the world is to become what the world says is a good guy. And right now, that means compromising in all kinds of areas where the world beckons one way and the Bible points another. But see what God's people did here in our passage. They desired for it to be heard and received in the places where life was most real, where they needed it most, in your homes, in your streets, at your work. When all around us, everywhere we look, has such a low view of Scripture, we as God's people should be the ones that display the highest view of Scripture be the hungriest for it, letting it speak into every aspect of our life. Jeremiah 15 verse 16 says, your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart for I'm called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I think it's obvious that someone is a person of the book when you see the Bible as their most prized possession in speaking into their everyday life. Which is what the Jews did here in this moment. Their hunger, but their hunger wasn't just evident in where they met, but what they did when they did meet. We read in verse three that they listened to God's law being read to them from the break of dawn to midday and that they were attentive to the book. Listening to it carefully and intently, doing it over a long period of time, having it read to them for six hours. That's the fellowship of the ring and the two towers. That's a long time, right? And it's quite inspiring, really. It really does paint a picture of a people of the book. But it's also quite confronting because it's a vastly different picture to the all too common sight of those who identify as people of the book. But in fact, have nothing to do with these pages whatsoever. The many whose Bible is better served as a bookend or paperweight, the Christians who are unmoved, unaffected by the Word of God, where it's clear that they don't have a hunger at all, but they have more of an indifference. But while you may sit there and think, well, that's not me. I'm not indifferent to God's Word. I know its, it's significance. Ask yourself, do you hunger for the Word of the Lord? Well, it's easy for me to say, well, I'm not those people who leave my, behind, my Bible behind to pick up dust. I know my daily temptation is to not hunger for this book. 
Every day, the enemy Satan will do whatever he can to starve that hunger. We read here that the Jews were so hungry for God's word that they listened to it from early morning until midday. But I'd say, but Lord, they lived in 500 BC. You know, no TV, no iPhones, no emails, no nine to five. I'm just too busy. I can barely find five minutes, let alone five hours. We read here that the Jews were attentive, their ears were opened enthusiastically, responsively to hear the word of the Lord, but I'd say, okay, Koi, you're almost done, you only have two pages to go, then you can finally, finally go about your day. We read that the Jews gathered as one people, as an assembly of God's chosen people to hear together what the Lord had to say to them as a whole, yet I'd say, I don't need to come along today, I've got a fair bit to do around the house, or maybe me in the pews, I wonder what the score is right now, what's my group chat saying, what's my calendar for the week, I better check it. In those moments, if somebody asked me, are you hungry for God's word, I know what my answer would be. And I think we can all agree that we've had these moments, seasons where our hunger for the word is dulled. And so what I find helpful from our passage to encourage us in those times is see why the Jews hungered for God's word, why they wanted, to, why, why they wanted everybody to hear it, listen to it for hours on end, were so attentive to every word. And I think it's because they had a real reverence for the word of God. See, in our passage, I see a people of the book who had a total respect for the book. In verse 4, it says that they had built a wooden platform so that the word could be read up high, elevated above them, an image of God's authoritative word and their submission to it. And in verse 6, it says that they were answering, amen, amen, as Ezra read, lifting up their hands, bowing their heads to the ground and worshipping the Lord. These Jews had a deep reverence of the word of the Lord as we see in our passage, and you could see why. See, the Word, the law of God for them, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, told them of their Lord God in the book of Genesis, who created the universe and who is good, who is close, and who is a God of promise. They told them of their God in Exodus, who is mighty to save and the deliverer of his people. They told him of their God in Leviticus, a holy, forgiving, and loving God who lives among unholy people. Their God in Numbers, who protects and provides for his covenant people. Their God in Deuteronomy, who is gracious and just as he blesses those who are faithful in curses those who disobey. It is in God's word to them that his people see the breadth and depth of his character. They see God's holiness, his generosity, his faithfulness. God's word is his revelation to them, to us, his creation. He reveals more of himself to us through this book. And scholar T.J. Betts says, people who recognize the character of God and the grace he has shown by the giving of his word will readily show their respect to God by demonstrating respect for his word. And so the encouragement to us who may struggle in hungering for the word is to go back to the basics. Remember the Lord God you worship. Remember our creator, our deliverer, holy, faithful, just Lord, and be renewed by his words that he has graciously given to us. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving 
the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. See, the church in Acts showed the same respect and hunger for God's word, and we saw the amazing things God did through them. Imagine if everyone here at City on a Hill had the highest regard for God's good word, a church which sought to live and be ruled by Scripture, a church where every ear was attentive to God's law, a church devoted in our devotion, a true people of the book. Every day we ought to pray for this, encourage each other in this, and seek to live by this. See, I remember a person from a gospel community at Melbourne West who, when I first met him, would say that he, he could never read anything. He just couldn't do it. He found it so hard to read any books, let alone be digging into the Bible. And as years went on, I saw something change in him. And I caught up with him to see, where he, to see what he would tell me. And that he told me that even though he had struggled to read, he decided to push through and found himself over time, wanting more and more and more. And no joke, now he sets his alarm every morning at 3.30 a.m. to wake up, to read the Bible for about 30 to 40 minutes and then go back to bed. It just works for him. That's what he does. It's a bit strange, uh, but he, he does that. And what he found is when he woke, he actually still remembers what he read and then he meditates on it all day. See, what an encouragement that was to hear. And it made me believe that the more we are in this book, the more our appetite for it will grow. We'll see five minutes become 10, 10 become 30, 30 become an hour. We won't see it as a chore, but read it with eagerness, responding with amen, amen, and lifting our hands and bowing our heads in worship to our God. We'll look forward to gathering as a church to hear the word preached to us, opening our eyes, opening our ears, our hearts to see more of God that we see in these pages. To be a people of the book, we need to hunger for the book. But just as important as we continue reading, what we see from our passage is that the Jews not only demonstrated a hunger for God's word, but they also wanted to understand God's word. See, there was a real enthusiastic passion from the Jews as they sought to hear from God's word together. But even with their, their zeal, without proper understanding, it would have been ineffectual, right? It's like when you start a new board game with a bunch of people and you get those people who are like, oh, let's just play, you know, we'll figure out the rules as we go. Who cares about the rules? Those people are the worst. That's what my wife says because I'm one of those people, right? <laughs> but it can't be like this with God's law. And Ezra and his assistants knew this. And so we read that they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And there's a few things that I see in these verses that I think is helpful for us uh, in our understanding the word. First of all, notice that God provides faithful teachers. In verse 2, we see Ezra being the one who brought the word. And you, are, you might remember Ezra in chapter 7, in Ezra chapter 7, that he was a priest and a scribe who had his heart, to set the, had his heart set to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. 
What makes Ezra notable here is that he doesn't simply study the law, but he applies it. He lives it out in his daily life. And so he speaks from it, from a, he speaks from the wooden platform, not detached from what he's teaching, but he practices what he preaches. T.J. Bet says it is his commitment to learn God's law and to obey it that makes him especially qualified to lead the events that take place in Nehemiah 8 and instruct the people. All throughout this series, we've seen how God has worked to provide and protect his people in their physical rebuild. But in God providing them with a man such as Ezra to read, explain, interpret, and apply the word of God to his people, this is God working for their spiritual rebuild. Because I think good teachers, teachers who are clearly people of the word, they build up others to be people of the word. Teachers who themselves hunger for God's word, teachers who walk in God's word, are built up themselves in God's word, who obey God's word, and then go out and teach God's word. See, when this happens, there's a follow-on effect. Adoniram Judson was an 18th century Baptist missionary who became the first North American Protestant missionary in Burma, Myanmar, and it took him 12 years to see 18 converts. Yet he remained a gifted and faithful teacher and a doer of the word throughout. And by the time he died, he had established 100 churches with over 8,000 members, a people of the word. See, like this example, the mission field is one of the evident ways that God provides faithful teachers today. This is a great reason for us to support our missionaries because through faithful, word-soaked teachers who God has raised up and equipped, he uses them to bring about spiritual revival to all nations. But it's not only out in the mission field, but more similarly in our churches too. God has provided you with your pastors, Nick, Neil, Pat, to often teach you the word. He's given you CK leaders, uh, CK teachers, lay pastors, faithful teachers who seek to be a people of the book. So we be thankful to our Lord and we support them. First Thessalonians 5 says, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So we love our teachers by supporting them through prayer daily praying for them that they may hunger for the word study for the Lord, study the word and importantly live out the word in order that they teach it faithfully they teach it truthfully and they teach it well building up the church and we also support them through encouragement tell your teachers what god has been teaching you through his word tell them what you found encouraging convicting challenging from their sermons classes or discussions tell them that you're praying for them and that you've seen the fruits of their labor god has graciously given us teachers of his word so let's love them through prayer and encouragement as a people of the word and as God provided the Jews with faithful teachers, what was happening was his word was being clearly expounded, explained. See, verse 7 has a list of Ezra's uh, Levite assistants who, had described, uh, who were described as helping the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. 
because most of the crowd spoke Aramaic rather than Hebrew, the Levite assistants from verse 7 were going around to the crowd translating and explaining what was being read in order that God's people would understand, getting clarification on things, hearing its implications, having God's words clearly translated, articulated, and explained to them. So author Wallace Ben says, they clearly expounded and applied the word of God to a people eager to hear. And I just love how they did this. Because at a macro level, here was a large group gathered together as a people of the book in one of the most populated spots in the city, depicting a real oneness. While at the same time, at a micro level, here were gifted leaders going around to small groups, helping explain and expound the Bible clearly for them to understand, depicting a real closeness. And it's funny, isn't it a little gospel community-like, isn't it? See, in GCs, we are often getting clarification on things we've heard from Scripture. In GCs, we are hearing the implications and applications of God's Word for our lives. In GCs, we have things expounded, explained to better understand the text. Maybe in some GCs, you're translating the Word from Hebrew to Aramaic too right? We do it. No, we don't. Do better, guys. No, no, just kidding. But really, it's such a great picture of a people of the Word, isn't it? What a picture this is. Not only is this a massive plug for gospel communities, but I think it's important to see the significance of not only hearing the Word, but understanding the Word. I think it presents a strong case for actual Bible study personal Bible study. Much of Scripture is plain to anyone who can read, but we also know that there is plenty in the Bible that is difficult to grasp, requires further explanation, or parts that we may have trouble interpreting, which is rather humbling. But what God has revealed through His Word is indeed for us. And so we should seek to best understand what the Lord has to say in here. And I just love how God shows us through doing it as a people. We see God's people do it together, encourage one another, build each other up in the word. As I said earlier, God provides us with teachers, with preachers who do that as the word is expounded and communicated at a macro level to a larger people of God, just as we're doing right now. But in our passage, we also see it at a micro level. Gifted leaders who help explain, initiate discussion, or even challenge each other on some of the things that may be difficult to grasp. People who commit to one another in the building up of sound, accurate, and clear teaching. A people of the book who explain it faithfully that brothers and sisters may be changed and that God may be glorified. First Timothy 4 says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. See, God desires that we understand his word so that, and he lets us do that as a people. As a church, let's devote ourselves to understanding God's word together. Plug into a gospel community if you haven't already. Get your kids involved in CK, in city youth. Go to church events that better equip you through the wisdom of the Bible. Meet up with your mentors and mentees for the word and prayer. God has graciously given us his word and the means to better understand it. So together, let's be committed to knowing more of this word 
As John Calvin said in a sermon, the word of God is not to teach us to prattle, not to make us eloquent and subtle and know not what. It is to reform our life so that it is known that we desire to serve God, to give ourselves entirely to him and to conform ourselves to his good will. The word is here to reform our lives. And the more we understand what is on these pages, the more we see the truths of the word that change us, which is exactly what happened with these Jews in Jerusalem. So let's keep reading in verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. As God's people sat there, hearing the word of God being preached to them, the Jews were hit with the harsh truth of the word, that they had fallen short of the God whom they worshipped. Hearing the word of God, grasping what it said, they were made aware that they stood there as a sinful people in front of a holy and good God. And so they had a deep sorrow for their sin, weeping in their failure as, as, the, as, heard, as they heard God's true word. And the thing is, this seems like a, a proper response, doesn't it? We only heard a few weeks ago in Ezra chapter 10 how God's people saw the weight of their sin and so repented to God, and that was a good thing. But strangely, here in verse 9, it tells us that Nehemiah, Ezra, and their leaders all told them not to grieve. And why is that? Well, I think that while God actually calls us to mourn for our sin, see the weight of our sin, He doesn't expect us to be in a state of perpetual grief over our transgressions. This was meant to be a day of celebration, a joyous gathering. This holy day they referred to was the day the exiles gathered as a returned people. The temple was rebuilt. The walls were rebuilt. God's people were back in their great city, Jerusalem. This was the day that God reaffirmed to them that they were still God's chosen people and that, they, he, that he was still their God. And that's something worth celebrating about. This was an occasion for joy. And so their grief was not fitting for this day. And I think this is helpful for us to hear because for us today, I think there is a helpful grief when it comes to our sin, but also there can be an unhelpful grief. I remember when I was doing my exam to go from my learners to my P's 20 odd years ago, I made a grave mistake at a traffic light as I hesitated and as the light turned yellow to red, I hesitated and I, I broke really hard and I stopped across the whole pedestrian crossing basically in the middle of the road. And I remember looking at my examiner and he was just shaking his head and just like, like this. And I knew I was toast. I'd failed that exam for sure. So I started showing physically, like showing how upset I was <laughs> with myself. Started, you know, anytime I, sh- I had the chance, I'd be like, like this. Uh, the steering wheel was there, and I'd be just gently going, like hitting it a bit slowly. Like, and then I'd just like, quietly whisper on my breath, like, what are you doing, Coy? Why'd you do that? You know, hoping that he would still hear it. And I just kept shaking my head and just really exaggerating, exaggerating that, and knowing that I'd probably failed this exam. Man, I was a lame 16-year-old then. But I was hoping to prove to my examiner by showing this level of grief that I had for my mistake. I was trying to prove it to him that I know that I messed up, but I'm trying to show so much grief so that he could change it. See, while I may have done this in my learner's test, 
I think that we can be tempted to often do this in our faith, where you feel like you need to prove yourself to God by the level of grief you have. You wallow in your self-deprecation, hoping that God sees you hate yourself. You believe in some sort of penance where you inflict forms of punishment as an expression of your sorriness. You're trying to prove to God of the group by showing the level of grief you have. But unhelpful grief could also mean you're thinking that you're too far gone. So we grieve thinking that God won't forgive us if we came to him, forgetting his nature and character that we see in his very word. There is helpful grief and a time for it, as we'll see in the following weeks and in the following chapters. But in this instance, they need not mourn for what a gracious and faithful God they worship who would still love them as his people. This was a time to celebrate, a time for joy. And Nehemiah makes sure to tell all God's people this, saying in verse 10, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength, or better translated, their stronghold, their fortress, their refuge. For all their sorrow, for all their guilt, for all their grief over their sin, there is a refuge, and it is the joy of their Lord. The joy of the God whom they have seen all along as they heard the word of God, the God in Scripture, the God who forgives them, the God who saves them, the God who remains faithful to them, the God who gives his grace to them. Because of God's readiness to forgive those who repent, Nehemiah encourages the crowd to no longer weep, but instead be joyful and celebrate, for this is the God you worship, a forgiving God, a good God, a gracious God. This is your God. And what first the crowd did not understand, now in verse 12 says, and all the people went their way to eat and to drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. It says that they understood, so they celebrated. See, author and pastor John Piper says of this passage, you can't honor Yahweh as holy if you, are only grieve, if you only grieve in his presence. Grief is good, fear is good, penitence is good, tears are good, but not if that's all you feel. God's holiness is the purity and perfection, not only of his justice, but also of his mercy and grace. How wonderful it is that as we see this people of the book be faced with the truth of the book, the truth of their sin, at the same time they are met with the joy of the word. That while there is indeed weeping, that there is also joyous celebration, that God convicts us of our sin in view of saving us from our sin. That as my pastor friend once told me, that being sorry for sin and trusting God's mercy for forgiveness are two sides of the same coin. And it wouldn't be too long later where God's people would come to see the clearest picture of both the truth and the joy of the word. As the wonderful word of God would not only be seen and heard from these pages, but the word would come in the flesh. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, while Scripture reveals to us the breadth and depth of God's character, where we see his holiness, his generosity, his faithfulness. God himself came down to us, where we saw the breadth and depth of his character in a person, Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God's holiness was made clearer as he walked this earth, not only studying, teaching, and living God's law perfectly, but fulfilling the law. In Jesus, God's generosity was made clear as he was crucified on a cross, giving up his body, his glory, his life to die the death meant for sinners. In Jesus, God's faithfulness was made clear as he was raised to life and ascended to heaven where the long-time promise of a Messiah and Savior for humanity was fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It is because of Jesus that we need not remain in grief for our sin, but know that we have a Savior who has washed away our sin, who has redeemed us by His blood and is ready to forgive those who repent. Grace and truth through Jesus Christ. And that's something worth being joyful about. But even more, while the Word became flesh, God promised something even more. In Jeremiah 31, verse 33, it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, as I invite up the music team to close us off, God had promised a new covenant of grace, where the law of the Lord is now written on his people's hearts. To those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, the word is now written on your hearts. You are in union with the word, united with Christ. You have the mind of Christ, and his spirit dwells in you richly. And so it is by his spirit that he gives you a hunger to hear more from here. It is by his spirit that he helps you understand the words that are on these pages. It is by his spirit that he convicts you of its truth. And it is by his spirit that he emboldens you in the joy of our merciful and gracious Savior. It is a true love of Jesus that leads us to a growing love for his wonderful, wonderful word to us. So City on the Hill, let's be a people of the book. For as R.C. Sproul wonderfully put it, it is by God's Word, the Bible, that leads us to God's Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, who leads us into a restored fellowship with our Maker. So like God's people in Nehemiah, let's celebrate that and sing joyful praise to our wonderful, wonderful God, our joy. And let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a gracious, gracious Father you are that you would give us your wonderful word. Your Psalms say, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. 
Lord, help us hunger for it. May your spirit open our hearts to understand your words that we may better see you and better obey. Thank you that your word is both truth and joy. That in Jesus, we see the truth of our sin, which he bore on that cross, but the everlasting joy that he is our redeemer, our savior, our Lord, the word become flesh. What good and joyous news that is, and we may celebrate. Thank you for your grace and mercy for us, our good and gracious God. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.